So it's worth revisiting scripture uh, over and over again. That's what Bible study is, right? To make sure that our modern understanding many, many thousands of years later of this ancient document is accurate to what was meant to be communicated all those many thousands of years ago. We wanna make sure that we really understand what this book is saying. Welcome to Apologetic Simplified, a podcast about Christianity, theology, and culture. Hit subscribe to be notified of each new episode. And now, here's your hosts, Leah Chapman and Andrew Foster. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Apologetic Simplified. Uh, we're kind of getting back into the hang of things here because it's been a while since uh, we recorded. Uh, you had an episode last time, not last week, last two two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah, last two weeks, if that's how you say that. But we had uh, recorded that a while ago. So uh, we were a little bit out of it. Really, we're always... Yeah, we're always a little bit out of yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> But we are back. Uh, so we figured we'd start off with a couple life updates and, you know, kind of why we ended up taking such a big break. So I got the chance to work at a summer camp. It is a fine arts day camp that was in West Virginia. A friend of mine is one of the directors and it's mostly music focused, but there's a few other fine arts things. There's a you know, visual arts like uh, painting. There was a claymation class and I was a teacher for the woodworking class. And it was a whole lot of fun. Got to see some friends, teach some little children and hear the same songs over and over <laughs> and over and over and over. Let's just say, wait in the water was stuck in my head like no one's business. Uh, and then, it, yeah, it was great. Great trip. Got to do a lot of hiking. The place was beautiful. Did some kayaking. Got a little sick and then was kind of out of commission when I got home for a couple of weeks. But I'm better now. That's good. Uh, Man, I wish I could have seen you give four-year-olds what the building blocks for kazoos. Was that four year olds? There were no four year olds in the woodworking class. Oh, okay. Well, that's probably good. Um, who? So, who did you help build kazoos though? Well, the kazoos we did uh, both weeks. So there was with the little kids. Uh, they had kazoos, and then okay, uh, the second week there were two classes. One was younger kids. One was older. The younger kids made kazoos again, and then the older kids made box guitars. Oh, that's right. Well, the box guitars were impressive, but I, I just can't get the kazoos out of my head because you sent a Snapchat and it just sounded like <laughs> I was gonna say it sounded like you recorded a bunch of bees. <laughs> and I can now officially say I have been rickrolled by a kazoo. So wow. there's that. I need to know this. Well, I heard in the distance a kid was playing never gonna give you up on the oh, kazoo. Oh, okay. Oh my gosh, the song will never die. Um <laughs> Well, I have also been busy. Um, yeah, this wasn't a planned break. Our lives just got more and more and more chaotic. And I was like, you know what? We need a break. <laughs> like, this isn't going to so, happen. Yeah. So we've heard my thing. And then, you know, Leah, you got a change coming up. Can you tell Can you tell us what's on your mind? What's on my... Oh, I was not a smooth transition on my part, but I got you. <laughs> yeah. Georgia is on my mind. Uh, yeah, as you probably know, we've been living in Texas, so this is not where I grew up. We lived in Texas for seven years, but um, recently decided to move back to Georgia, mainly for family, but I also got a job I'm very excited about. So um, yeah, 
by the time this posts, I will be a Georgia resident again and getting ready to start a new youth ministry job in LaGrange, Georgia. So very excited about that. But right now I'm right in the middle of all the chaos of moving. And so I'm ready for all that to be over. Hmm. LaGrange, Georgia. That sounds familiar. Do you have any history there? Yes. (laughs) I have four years of history. I went to the college there, LaGrange College, good Methodist establishment. So I got my math degree there in LaGrange. So it feels like coming home. Math? And now you're doing ministry? What do those have in common? (laughs) If you're wondering about that, look back at our past episodes. (laughs) So you're taking this devil's advocate role real seriously for for this episode that we have coming up. That's right. For this episode, we are going to be talking about creation. Leah's done all the research, so she'll be pouring out the information, and I'll be asking the questions and playing devil's avocado. Avocado. (laughs) It's not like like when you think the avocado is ready and you're like, yes, now I have the perfect. And then you cut it open, but you were wrong. You waited one day too late and it's brown and squishy. I don't eat avocados, so I don't know. <laughs> I think I think that is what it is. But yes, we're talking about creation. We're going to be um, discussing a few chapters from the book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. It's volume one, written by John Walton. I read this book in seminary, and it transformed the way I approach the Genesis creation accounts. Um, and he has 21 propositions that he discusses throughout the book, but we're only going to talk about the first four chapters, the first four propositions. And if as we're going, you're like, well, gee, I wish I could know more, read the book. (laughs) We've said before that this is just supposed to get you an idea, like start getting you into something and then we'll pass you off to the person who can uh, really help you learn more if you are interested in doing so. So The Lost World of Adam and Eve, it's on Audible, it's on Kindle, very convenient to get access to. So the four propositions we are going to be looking at are these. Proposition one, Genesis is an ancient document. Proposition two, in the ancient world and the Old Testament, creating focuses on establishing order by assigning roles and functions. Proposition three, Genesis one is an account of functional origins, not material origins. And Proposition 4, in Genesis 1, God orders the cosmos as sacred space. And of course, we shouldn't forget Proposition 65. This product contains chemicals known to the state of California (laughs) to cause cancer and birth defects or other reproductive harm. Oh, well, thank you for including that. That was really helpful. Uh, So we're going to walk through these one by one through four. So Proposition 1, Genesis is an ancient document. So this might sound obvious. Of course, Genesis is an ancient document. It is many, many millennia years old. <laughs> um, is that how you say that? Many millennia old? Many? Do you need the years? Whatever, it's really old. Um, and it comes from a world that is very different from our own, albeit the same planet, but very different culture than our own. It's called the ancient Near East. Um, and it is just, yeah, it's very, very different than the world that we are used to in the way that we're used to the world working is written in a very different language than most of us are used to reading. It's an old book. And so it can be hard to understand what is being said. So it's worth revisiting scripture 
uh, over and over again. That's what Bible study is, right? To make sure that our modern understanding many, many thousands of years later of this ancient document is accurate to what was meant to be communicated all those many thousands of years ago. We want to make sure that we really understand what this book is saying. And so um, John Walton wants to revisit this with some new understandings that we have gained recently about ancient Near Eastern culture. And it might be, hint it is, that the conclusions we come to about what this creation account was intended to communicate might be pretty different than the conversations we typically have around uh, this creation story. So regarding this proposition, the question can be raised, if the Bible's creation story wasn't literal, wouldn't we know after 2,000 years of church history and study? Yeah, so this sort of implies the one, a particular interpretation of Genesis, and that is that it's a literal seven-day creation story that God literally created certain things on seven 24-hour days. Um, and so it's typically the question or the assumption that's behind this question is that if, like, wouldn't we know by now after all this time if this was literal or not? And I love this quote from him. Throughout most of church history, scholars have not had access to the information from the ancient world and therefore could not use it to inform their interpretation. Even the early church fathers were interested in accessing the ancient world, but had very limited resources. So yeah, we've learned a lot over the past 2000 years of church history. And of course, um, history uh, before that, because again, Genesis is way older than the New Testament. Um, like, yes, we've learned a lot in that time, but we're continuing to get more information that needs to inform our understanding of what this creation account is trying to say. So it might just be that Genesis 1 is not trying to convey a literal seven-day creation account. It might be that it's trying to convey something else. Um, is this a heretical understanding of scripture? Well, as we've talked about in season whatever it was. <laughs> the Patrick season. Patrick, I think it was last season. Um, very few things are actually heresy, and they typically revolve around very specific gospel-related things. We have a whole series of episodes about it. You can go find. Um, so, no, at the very least, it's not heretical. But is this just completely twisting scripture? Might be another way to ask this. Are, are we really saying that the Bible says that there was evening and morning the first day, and we're saying no? That's not really what it says. Like, are we, are we twisting scripture here? Um, and so this is what he has to say. Again, another quote. Though the Bible itself does not change, we realize that our interpretation of scripture is much more dynamic and the resulting shape of theology, consequently, is subject to constant reassessment. And so here's what that means. Scripture is never wrong. What God wrote isn't wrong, but our understanding of it can be. And that doesn't mean it's all wrong. Like, well, we should just throw out everything we've ever learned about um, the Genesis creation story because we might be wrong. No, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, but we continue to tweak and we continue to learn and modify our understanding because our goal here isn't to find a meaning for scripture that lines up really well with our culture. 
Uh, the goal here is to understand what was intended. What did God want us to learn from this? What did God want the original readers to learn from this? And then what can we learn from it too? That sounds complicated. Why is scripture so hard to understand? It's a good question, Andrew. <laughs> Not really is though. Scripture is hard to understand. And what he says is that Scripture is hard to understand, especially when we're talking about this creation story, because the story is in what he called high context communication, or rather it is high context communication. So in high context communication, it means that everybody who's going to be listening to this or um, hearing these stories when they were originally written or spoken, they're going to know things that were not several millennia later. They're going to know things about their culture. They're going to know things about um, uh, just the way they understand the world that we don't because we don't live in that culture. And I thought that he gave a really good example of this. He said, it's like a traffic report. Um, you can listen to a traffic report for the city and they're talking about the connector and they're talking about these certain areas of town that you won't actually find on a map. Your GPS isn't going to tell you to go through this area of town in this very localized term that the people of that city know, but nobody else knows. So you're listening to the traffic report on the radio and you're like, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. What's a that's, spaghetti junction? That's a spaghetti junction. Yeah. It's a mess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, like you're not going to understand if you're not from that town or you haven't lived there before, you're not going to know what that means. Um, Cause we have these terms that we come up with that we can use that everybody in our context understands, but people outside our context are going to be confused. The Bible was originally written each individual book to the people in that context. So that sounds obvious, but it's good to remember the Bible wasn't written directly for a 21st century American context. It was written in the case of Genesis um, for a ancient Near Eastern culture and is going to have certain ways it speaks that has to do with their culture, has to do with their understanding of the world. And that's really different than ours. So again, with high context communication, when you know an area, when you know a person, when you know a subject matter or whatever else it is, you're going to use certain terms that have unique meanings to that subject where someone on the outside is naturally going to have trouble following the conversation. Um, so any new information for us as outsiders, people outside that context, we want to get all the information we can to help us dive into these high context scriptures so that we can understand what they mean through the ears of a ancient Near Eastern listener or reader. Um, and I say listener because, you know, oral traditions largely was the thing during that time. We want to be able to hear this with their ears rather than with our 21st century American ears, because we're going to understand things different. And we want to know what was intended to be communicated way back then, because that's going to help us understand the text. So why is scripture so hard to understand? Because we don't live in that context and we have to figure out how to dive into that context. We need more information in order to learn and understand what was intended way back when. So let's move on to propositions two and three. I'm going to do them together. And basically these two propositions are talking about how the creation story is about establishing order 
and assigning roles and functions rather than the creation story being about material origins. Now, this is one way I think it's really fascinating um, (laughs) that we as Christians, uh, we say we don't like materialism, like, oh, there's a God, we can't see him, uh, but we know he's there. Uh, But materialists, they only believe in the things that they can see. And yet, We too have these materialistic tendencies. We think in terms of objects that we can see and touch and feel just naturally because of our cultural context. It's not necessarily bad. It's just how we see the world. We we like things that we can feel and touch and see and and understand with our five senses. We like those things um, because, again, of the culture that we are in. But... What John Walton is arguing is that that's not how the ancient Near Eastern culture experienced the world. That's not how they thought. Um, The ancient creation stories were about establishing order and function from chaos. And so we're going to approach Genesis 1 differently uh, if we approach it as a materialistic 21st century and centuryist whatever versus an ancient near eastern here of this story we're gonna see it differently so then how are you suggesting we read genesis one i'm glad you asked i am going to pull it up because i forgot to do that in my <laughs> bible on my internet Why do you asked because i don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know i do i do okay so i'm gonna read Um, Just the first two, not two chapters, first two verses of Genesis 1. And I'm reading from the CSB. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That sounds so like beautiful and poetic, but like what in the world is that supposed to mean that God was hovering over the surface of the waters? (laughs) <laughs> that clang you just heard was Andrew trying to demonstrate what that might look like. It was really inspired. What we're seeing here in these early moments is the world before it was ordered and before it had function. And he compared this account to the Babylonian creation account. Uh, and he has a quote in its original English. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, <laughs> a tr- <laughs> obviously, this is also a translation. Um, and but this quote from the Babylonian creation story says, "Sorry, I'm still laughing at my joke." <laughs> oh, that was a good one. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. When on high, no name was given to heaven nor below was the netherworld called by name. When no gods at all had been brought forth, none called by names, none destinies ordained. Okay, what's the biggest difference between this where we have when no gods at all had been brought forth versus the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters? Ooh, 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 I know. (laughs) Yes, Andrew, yes. God already existed. Yeah, there you go. Good job. You get candy. Um, so the big difference between this Genesis account and this Babylon Babylonian account is that there, when there was chaos in the Babylonian account, meaning no order, no function, there was also no God at that time. They weren't doing anything. Nothing was happening. Versus in the Genesis creation account, we have God, the spirit of God already there. And so at the very least, 
even if you disagree with everything else that John Walton will say, because I understand a lot of people are uh, tied to that seven day creation story. At the very least, the point of this is that in the beginning, when there was nothing, when there was void, when there was no order, there was no function, there was nothing, God was there. Whereas the other accounts said there was no gods. We say, no, God, God was there. Even they in said place. no gods. We say no God. There you go. <laughs> so even in that orderless and functionless place, God was there. So uh, Walton goes on to um, explore different Hebrew words for the English word create. If you want to learn more about that, read the book. Um, essentially, his conclusion is that the words for create here don't simply talk about material creation, but indicate separation. Uh, we're talking about animals and plants. We're talking about separating the waters above from the waters below. And he talks about what that means in ancient Near Eastern context, which is very interesting. Everybody believed that there was a solid body of water in the sky. And so speaking in that context, he was talking about separating those things. He's creating order out of chaos. And that's the point here. When we go through these first six days of creation, we are seeing God, who was there from the beginning, creating order from nothingness. So the text is doing more here, according to Walton, than just giving a material day-by-day breakdown of what God did. That's not really the point because the ancient Near Eastern people probably wouldn't have cared. That wasn't the point. The point of this was to communicate that God was there and God was the one who ordered this thing for us. And what's cool is that God gave humans a function too, to be co-creators with God. Uh, Walton calls it vice regents. I like the term co-creators, whereas all the other creation were given function, given order. We as people we're given the job to participate in this ordering and this functioning of this world. We we have a hand in continuing to cultivate this wonderful earth that God gave us. Now to conclude his section on the first six days of creation, he gives this amazing illustration. And I really resonate with it because like I said, I'm moving. Um, and I am moving from the first house I've owned to a new house. And so I am I'm like thinking about houses. If somebody says... You have a beautiful home. I'd love for you to tell me about it. Would you say, oh, well, in 1984, there were a group of developers who decided to put up a neighborhood in this area of town. It wasn't unanimously voted on as some people like that this was, uh, you know, just forest, but they won anyway. So they started building the projects and they decided to do small plots of land so they could get more in there, make more money. But then they decided to make them two stories to give them more square footage. Do you, do you think that's what your friend was wanting to know about your house? Probably not. Probably not. I got kind of bored just reading that out to you. Um, They probably want to know more about how this became your home. You'd probably say something like, thank you. We moved in a couple years ago. My favorite thing about this home is our movie room. It's a fun place to gather with friends and family to watch shows and movies together. And it's been a great first home for our child because blah, 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 blah. You'll go on about how this has been a good functional place for you, not about how the house came to be constructed. They probably don't care. There's probably be a few people who might, but for the most part, they probably don't care. They don't want to know. And this was his point, how the house became a building. They want to know how this house became a home. And what he's arguing is that that's really the point of this creation story. Uh, God's not trying to give us a, a blueprint of exactly how he made all the things. It's really not about the material beings. 
It's about how God created this home for us and he gave it order and he gave it function. And most of all, it was him, the master builder, the brilliant architect who brought it all to life. Whereas the other religions say the gods weren't around yet. The Bible shows that God was there even before the order and function was there. And then he created something wonderful in that by giving order, by giving function. And then we have the opportunity to participate that um, as well. Well, we have covered all six days of creation. Woo, what a whirlwind. So thank you so much for joining hold us. We're so- on, hold on. You're forgetting something. Uh-oh. <laughs> what is it this time? <laughs> well, you see, there are more than six days of creation. Say it. Say what? it. I mean, I know that we all kind of grew up learning about the six days of creation and then learning that on the seventh day, God took a nap. Nap time, yeah. <laughs> But what I love is that Walton says, no, 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 no. We can't stop at the six days of creation. Hold There's horses more now, Patrick. <laughs> exactly. That's essentially what he does. And um, in all, all honesty, I almost stopped at the third proposition. And then I got to the fourth one and it was like, I, we have to talk about the seventh day. And then I'm like, oh yeah, that'd probably be a good idea to talk about all seven days. But that's exactly how we see it, right? Like, oh, so God created stuff and then he took a nap because he was tired from all this work. Yeah, six, six days of important work and then seventh day doesn't really matter. Sabbath doesn't really matter, does it? No, <laughs> you just kind of dismiss it. God didn't make it like part of the Ten Commandments or anything didn't like say that. The, I remember it make it holy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's whatever. No, Walton is saying this is important. The seventh day matters. It paints a picture of what one does in this ordered functional space that God has made for us. You live in it. You rest in it. Sure, you might take a nap, but that's not really the point. (laughs) Uh, Walton believes that that's what that seventh day is supposed to communicate. You get to enjoy and live in this space that God made for you and that we get to continue to cultivate. As you do more than just work on your house when it needs work done, you live in it. And it is your home. You get that. You come in from work after a long day and it's like, oh, I'm home. And that rest that you feel uh, like in your soul. That's what that seventh day is meant to communicate. So I've only covered four of the 21 propositions that he covers. And I covered them very very broadly. If you want to learn more, pick up the book. It's on Audible. It's on Kindle. And in fact, if you own them on both, it'll sync on your phone and you can click play and you can read along, which is great because when I just listen to things, I tune out. And when I'm just reading things, I tune out. But somehow when I'm doing both, anyway, it's really nice. Very easy to get access to this book. Um, The rest of the book is excellent as well. Like I said, I read it in seminary, really enjoyed it. And thanks to supporters on Patreon, we have been able to continue to read more and more books. So if you want to help us continue to learn and be smart and communicate our smartness to you, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash Leah D. Chapman. So at the end of this, we hope you remember that God is the one who created. God created this world for us to live in and for us to enjoy. And we get the opportunity and responsibility to continue to cultivate it. So we hope you learned something new today. And as, uh, as mentioned earlier, if you want to dive in further, check out this book. Again, thank you so much for listening and God bless. Apologetic Simplified is a part of Leah Chapman Ministry Productions. To learn more, go to www.leahchapman.org. And thanks for listening.